I hope we never actually put this show up to uh, any sort of a, a vote because I, you know they're going to punish us by putting the, the Wiggles on for us. We're going to cover season, what is it, 15 of the Wiggles? Welcome back to On the Throne, the Shadow on TV podcast, unofficial companion piece to the incomparable HBO series, A Game of Thrones. I'm one of your hosts, Gene Lyons, and alongside me is my co-host, Big D, Dick Ebert. Good evening. Welcome back, D. Hey, nice to be here. Uh, I, I appreciate you covering for me yesterday. Hey, no problem. It was my pleasure. I, I was glad to sit down alone with with the uh, with the equally pissed off fans and uh, and, and just kind of ruminate. Yeah, I, w- I want to thank everybody for, uh, you know, we had some people write in, direct message, uh, wishing me well and hoping everything was uh, cool at home. And I figured I would tell you, I'd talk to my wife about it. You know, sometimes on the, the podcast, we talk about our personal lives and what's going on at home. And uh, my wife and I had been trying for six years to have a child uh, with in vitro. My wife, unfortunately, has difficulties just having children naturally. So we had to go the, the, the doctor route. And we were blessed to... Uh, two years ago now with the daughter, Emma, and we still had a couple embryos left. Uh, it was our last chance to get a little brother or sister for Emma. Uh, and unfortunately, the last month has been trying because we were going through treatment. And then finally, uh, earlier this week, we found out it, it didn't take, uh, and it was a difficult time at home. So the podcast, even though I love it, you got to take a time out for home. Absolutely. And I was happy to help. And I just can't believe your dedication to uh, to this project and, and bouncing back so quickly. Uh, hats off to you. No, it's it's we do the podcast because we love it. And it's also it's a good outlet. So today, when I was feeling down, I'd gotten a direct message from one of our listeners. And I said, you know, it really makes a difference, you know, that people care and you start to build that relationship with the audience. So uh, it's actually helped me through this. So I listened to the podcast yesterday I was editing. It's got to be a hard thing to talk for 30 minutes alone. Absolutely. It was. Uh, it felt, <laughs> felt very odd, uh, especially editing myself over and over as I was talking. I'm much more conscious of what I'm saying when it's just me doing the talking. But yeah, that's it. I appreciate everybody out there who listens to us, uh, and, and hopefully you get as much joy out of it as we do making it. All right, that being said, this is our fan email episode where we look back on this week's episode of Game of Thrones and provide our feedback on the top listener emails for the week, all part of a segment we call The Small Council. This week's episode was entitled Beyond the Wall. You listened to our ideas on Tuesday's Deep Dive. Now it's our turn to hear from you. Uh, We had a slew of emails, both positive and negative, uh, regarding this episode. But more importantly, a lot of new theories, people really drilling down to what they expect to see out of the season finale and also their predictions for major characters. Who's going to bite it in episode seven? Uh, What's the Night King up to? We're going to get to all that and more in this uh, blizzard of small council missives. Yeah, I'm excited to see what people, uh, you know, have to say because it's been an interesting week. You've had uh, a lot of people who don't like the episode, a lot of people who do like the episode. Uh, so I think I've I've softened a bit on it. I realize we're holding the show to an unrealistic standard. For six years, it's been near perfection, and down that we're coming towards the end, we're having a little separation anxiety, and we're still expecting it to be perfect. But even with its little minor flaws here and there, and the things that we've all addressed and beaten to death it's the gold standard of premier television, without a doubt. 
Absolutely agree, Big D. And why don't we get started? Let's go ahead and walk into the chambers and start the small council. Shame. 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 All right, kicking us off, we got a very special climate report coming from Edmonton, Canada. This is Kevin. Kevin writes, Hi guys, Kevin from the northerly Edmonton, Canada here. Although I'm loath to defend the Swiss cheese episode, I did not have a problem with the cold. Several details suggest it's not that cold. There's a flowing stream and the ice on the lake is thin. Also, that it's snowing suggests it's not too cold since it rarely snows below zero degrees Fahrenheit. Many people don't wear hats at this temperature, especially if they have long hair. Having said that, one might well freeze standing in the middle of a lake for at least four days. The wind in that exposed position would create a much lower wind chill temperature. They can barely move to keep warm, have no fire, and have lost their supply sled. One more thing about the cold, a two-pound rock skittering across the lake is no evidence that ice is not thin. Perhaps if it is thrown straight up and down, the newly formed ice might even support a light skeleton, but would surely break anew once the horde is on it. On that note, I'm surprised no one has brought up the idiocy of the hound throwing rocks at the horde in the first place. The only effect it could conceivably have is, well, the effect it did have, provoking them to try to cross. Some problems might have been solved easily. Having the dragon land on land, or even in shallow water, would have negated the need for chains and for attaching them deep underwater. Also, having Danny, who was obviously anxious about the expedition, leave on her own volition would have solved the unforgivable time problem. Kevin of the North from Edmonton, Canada. They do give the hound a little bit of a look when he throws the first rock, but it would make sense that you don't want to provoke uh, you know, this surrounding herd. Keep them as docile as possible by yourself the most time. But we've talked about that the horde of, of walkers seems to have an intelligence, that they stop at the edge of the waters it broke. I'm kind of surprised that they didn't try to venture out much as they did once the hound threw the boulder and that throw was, the rock was way too big. He couldn't have made that throw. Why they didn't venture out in smaller groups and start to probe the ice unless they you know, weren't in too much of a rush to go get them. No, absolutely. I mean, they know from a, from a consciousness that they, they're not going to, they're already dead. They got nowhere to be. So in, in essence, they can just wait out the living. But beyond that, if you subscribe to the idea that this is a trap, they don't want them dead. They want them there. They're bait, right, for Daenerys. And in essence, you see when they when they come after uh, Snowshin Seven, they form a circle around them to begin with. It's not um, it's not a desperation attempt there. They could have flanked them very easily. This was this was clearly an attempt to encircle and capture them. We've seen them also before just run over their own bodies. I mean, you can imagine a scenario kind of like uh, Battle of the Bastards, where you just throw dead bodies to bridge and run right over them. That would not be an issue. Also, the Night King shows that he's pretty good with a javelin. So, um, yeah, this was this was not an issue of them not being able to get across the water. No, but another good defense would have been upon second viewing. The Hound, when he breaks the, the ice uh, with Gendry's hammer and a few fall in, it would have been smarter as, you know, first, you want to stay warm, so you want to be as active as possible. They should have been spending time breaking the ice all around the rock the entire time. Stop it from freezing. So at least then you'd have that final last circle like a moat. Might have been a good use of time, kept you warm. And also, everybody, if you get trapped in the cold, you know, cuddle together. You know, share some human body heat. Yeah, especially if one of your friends has a a sword that can turn into fire. That's helpful. Thanks for writing, Kevin. Our next one comes from Circumspect Penelope from Cleveland, Ohio. Circumspect writes, 
Much has been written about the Game of Thrones' bad writing and adaptation of Lady Sansa Stark. In defense of the show's writers, remember that in The Song of Fire and Ice, George R.R. R. Martin handed them a decidedly flat character, more object than subject, not much to work with. Her story was like the perils of Pauline. Stuff happened to her, stuck in King's Landing, beaten by Joffrey, married off to Tyrion, kidnapped by Littlefinger, and held prisoner as Elaine at the Eyrie. In both novels and the show, Sansa's narrative arc most closely resembles Theon Greyjoy's. They have a history of being powerless, red, impotent, hostages. Sansa, like Theon, would be motivated to take unusual action to avoid recapture. When Arya threatens to undermine Sansa's security within Winterfell with Jon Snow and the Northern Lords, Sansa, in a solid characterization, would deprive Arya of her defender, Brienne, break into Arya's room, and attempt to steal the incriminating scroll. Sansa is a scared character who has historic reasons to be scared. Lastly, the show writers crafted the scene near the wintry wall where Littlefinger confesses to Sansa his long-term objective to rule the Seven Kingdoms with her by his side. Since then, she has not put him out. Perhaps the show writers want the viewers to see her in action as a decision, a decision to hedge her bets because Littlefinger is talented and this King of the North thing rarely lasts for long. Again, Sansa's character is driven by fear and a need for security. Sansa is not the most well-drawn character on Game of Thrones, but the writers have done a passable job in establishing her internal motivations. By the way, she's going to hurt Arya this week. That's signed Circumspect Penelope from Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah, I think the the viewers have made a lot over the last couple seasons with the abuse that Sansa and Theon took. The abuse was uncomfortable to a lot of viewers. You have to hope at, at this late stage that the least that could come of that and, and, and everything we suffered, it was difficult to watch, is that she could become a, a more well-formed character and have some form of, of revenge. If anybody deserves it, Sansa does. She makes that comment to Arya. You wouldn't have survived the things I went through. You can't even imagine. And Arya said, yeah, you know, I didn't know that. I can imagine a lot of bad things. So uh, I think if anyone deserves some revenge, it would be her. Thanks for writing in circumspect Penelope. Uh, up next, we have one from Stacy. Uh, Stacy actually wrote this on YouTube, and I asked her to email it into us, and she was kind enough to do so. It's a, it's a great one. Uh, Stacy writes, uh, your podcasts are awesome, and I'm glad you put them on YouTube, or I never would have found them. Making sense of the dumbest plot since the Sand Snakes, the capturing of a white to convince Cersei. I don't enjoy tinfoil theories, but things like R plus L equals J, I don't consider tinfoil. That said, what if... John, surviving and being reborn from the lake, is a fulfillment of the Azor Ahai prophecy. Everyone, rightfully so, is hung up on how ridiculous this mission of inwesterous bastards was. Consider the visions of the mountain shaped like an arrow at the place where the Night King was created, Bran giving just enough info to tell John where to go, even though Bran knows so much more. There has to be a much greater purpose to going where all these main characters than to capture a white, even though none of the viewers or characters know any different. Big D even mentioned the connection of the arrow-shaped mountain last instant reaction vid, which is his fantastic catch. Hope he and his family are okay. <laughs> I decided we have to look at the actual result of this mission impossible if we're going to make sense of it, rather than just calling it stupid or manufacturing tinfoil out of thin air. Okay, so point one. We get the third head of the dragon, the Night King, Ice, Danny, Fire, and John, Ice and Fire. Two, we get John being reborn, surviving the ice, water, and cold. Three, 
We get the champion as John kills another White Walker and the revelation that if you kill the White Walker, the whites it controls cease to be animated. The champion now has all the knowledge he needs, dragon glass, valyrian steel, fire, killed the White Walker and you killed the whites, etc., to defeat the Night King. And he apparently holds off whites for Drogon to load up the crew. Point four. Danny sees John as her champion, and we solidify their relationship to make Whoopi. Here, salty tear when John opens his eyes could be the salt in John being reborn. Five, Danny is supposedly barren, unable to give birth, her womb stone. Were she to get prego from John, it would be a stone dragon baby. Again, fulfilling the Azor Ahai prophecy. Only death can pay for life. Viserion was her child. The second or third time she's emphatically mentioned it to John. Six. The Night King now has a way to get over the wall, and a champion is important now more than ever. So while the stated premise for this mission impossible is so painfully idiotic, in the context of the Azor Ahai prophecy, of which there are several variations, it makes a lot of sense. But then again, maybe I'm giving Dan and Dave way too much credit. And that signs Stacey E. No, I think it's an interesting thought. Uh, early on, I just want to have a correction in there. She said that uh, Bran gave John just enough information to, to give him to go on. John had no part in this. John doesn't even know that, well, he knows that Bran is back in Winterfell, but he hasn't had a chance to talk to him. They're not being driven by Bran's information. It's by the Hounds. And this goes back to that trap theory. A lot was made about the pacing and and people's jetpacking complaints are based a lot on how much traveling our main characters did and how far the Horde made it. In this, we can see the Horde's pretty quick when they want to get somewhere. If they were moving even at a moderate pace, they would have been at the wall three episodes ago, however many you know days that is in, in showtime. They had to have been waiting. And that leads me to, if they were waiting and the Azor Ahai prophecy uh, is as true as Stacy writes, why would the Night King be waiting there to help fulfill the prophecy? That's my only issue with the theory. No, but I think I think what Stacey's getting at is not that the Night King was there to f- help fulfill a prophecy or anything like that. Or I think what she's getting at is this plot line seemed goofy. Th- the way it pans out, they're like, why would you have all these things happen in this sequence? And wh- I think what she's saying is, if this is respecting the prophecy or a play on the prophecy, then it makes more sense, right? So like, if it's just a mission to go up there and get a white to show Cersei, it doesn't make sense at all. But if you're, but if it's if it, if the if the writers had to say, okay, guys, here's the prophecy. Reflect it in this sequence. I think they did an okay job. But we agree that the Night King doesn't seem preoccupied with getting John. Absolutely not. He had a clear shot at him down on the ground. He almost yeah. seems to be avoiding, uh, you know, killing John again. I mean, when you think about it, he throws a, a spear at Viserion, and he throws a spear at Drogon only when Jon Snow is completely clear and underwater does he actually even take the shot, which he misses. But I, I don't think that he's too preoccupied uh, with killing Jon Snow. And as you said, he might even be trying to avoid it. Thanks for writing in, Stacy. Twice. Uh, on to Carter Hansen from St. Paul, Minnesota writes, I feel like most people I see complaining about plot holes and pacing this season either haven't watched the entire show or simply don't pay enough attention while watching it. Here's a point people are missing. The romance between Jon and Daenerys is so forced and rushed. That's what people are saying. Carter's argument is these two characters have been on a collision course since season one, episode one. The parallels between their journeys over 60 hours of film are remarkable and unlike anything else in TV or cinema. They both clearly have qualities that are attractive to one another. They both are willing to sacrifice themselves for their people and stand up for what they believe in. 
Beyond that aspect, their interactions with each other have actually been quite believable this season. When John first arrives at Dragonstone, he is met with great skepticism and they do not agree on many things. But when Daenerys sees the paintings in the cave and sees that Drogon lets John touch him, she knows there is something special about this man and what he is saying may be true. This is not just some excuse to get two hot actors to hook up on screen. The union of these two characters is quite literally a song of ice and fire and has been planned for a very long time. I'll admit it may seem cliche at first, but not having this happen just for the sake of unpredictability doesn't feel true to the greater story they're trying to tell. There's enough unpredictability everywhere else on the show already. That's from Carter. You know, a lot of people have said, oh, I don't want to see it. And I'm even guilty of that, too. I'm like, oh, it's so predictable. Uh, I don't want to see it go this way. Like, we don't want happily ever after. But here's the thing. First of all, the two of them getting together does not equal happily ever after. Second, you have to take yourself back in your mind and go, let's go back to season one. Did we ever see these two pairing up? And I would argue, no, we didn't. But it is logical at this point. It is where the two paths are going. And if you look at it from Carter's perspective, uh, like Carter says, 60 hours of film drove these two people together through parallels, through writing, through a gradual abandonment through loss and through a shared mission. And I think that if you look at it from that perspective, regardless of whether the chemistry on screen is odd, the point is is that it actually is not a far-fetched uh, storyline, especially not as far-fetched as other things we've seen this season. No, I don't think the chemistry is that odd. Uh, I think I actually kind of like it. Other than Daenerys standing by the fire talking to Tyrion, he says, oh, I'm sure John is staring at you for your... I don't know, she's something like your leadership. What does she say? Do you know? He says uh, he's he's looking forward to the prospect of a military alliance. Yeah, other than that little giggle she gives or that little half smile, uh, I think the chemistry is there, and I I don't mind seeing it. I'm always weirded out by the way parents say the word giggle. It sounds different. What? I think maybe giggle's a bad word for anyone to use. No, I know, but just when uh, when you're a dad, see, I say giggle, and a dad, you're a dad, you say giggle. I feel like Maybe. you just use the word a lot more than I do. Uh, like it's it's just a foreign word to me. Fuck. God, the worst part is my my daughter has fallen in love with that TV show The Wiggles. <laughs> you, it is awful. It's awful. Being a parent's great. The the shows you have to watch. I'm at work today singing the songs that I don't even want to repeat right now because they'll get stuck in your head as well. But just do not Google the Wiggles. Stay away from it if you have kids. I'm sorry. I hope we never actually put this show up to uh, any sort of a, a vote because I, you know they're going to punish us by putting the, the Wiggles on for us. We're going to cover season, what is it, 15 of the Wiggles? Yeah, the only good thing is if you ever Google the Wiggles, I guess in the uh, early 2000s, one of the members of the group had a drinking problem, went off the deep end, threatened to kill the other ones, uh, ended up in rehab. They eventually kicked him out. So quite dramatic for a kid's uh, TV show. It's 2017, and I just heard a grown man who served in the United States Army say, Google the Wiggles. My, my <laughs> life is complete. All right, next God, up I is... I, I don't even know what would come up if you Googled that. Make sure you have the, uh, the what is it, the adult uh, settings turned on? Turned on, yes. Mm-hmm. John Lish writes the next one. He says, hello, Raj, Big D, and Gene. A little speculation based on theories out on the internet. There's a story that the visions and the flames actually come from green seers rather than the actual Lord of Light. This is an intriguing theory as it allows multiple actors to influence through providing visions, whether that be the Children of the Forest, Blood Raven, Bran, or the Night King himself. 
It's clear through the interactions between Bran and the Night King that both can operate on the same sphere. In this episode, Beric Dondarrion chats with Jon Snow about the Lord of Light. Jon comments that he doesn't know what these gods want, and Beric replies, it's not our purpose to understand. Could this lack of understanding of will be because different green seers want different outcomes? If the vision of the flames the hound saw were provided by the Night King, then this episode can be seen as a trap by the Night King to capture a dragon. He lured them to an area where his army of whites could contain our heroes and wait for the rescue by dragons. After all, it was rather convenient that they had ice spears for this very purpose with them. If the ice dragon is used to breach the wall, I guess now we're assuming it's an ice dragon, is used to breach the wall in some way in the next episode, then we have an explanation for why the army of whites have been wandering around since season one. They needed the key to be given to them. It isn't a universal explanation, but I feel it has logic to it. The Night King is a very clever actor here, whereas Tormund observes to John that they aren't very smart to embark on this quest to capture a white. I also feel the actor who played the captured white deserves props for really committing to the role. They made me laugh on several occasions with their constant twitching. Keep up the good work, guys. And that's from John. Man, I think that's really an interesting take. That there's possibly a a secondary layer of battle that's going on uh, from everything that we've seen. I I don't think anyone that I've read anywhere else or or heard anyone say that there could be competing green seers. It would explain why Melisandre keeps getting it wrong and, and... you know, prophecies are a tricky thing. If there's somebody proactively planting fake visions to throw the other side off. Well, it's interesting because if you're a good person or even a person who deep down wants to be good and you are given a supernatural power or an ability or a vision, you would assume that it's coming from a good place, right? That you were imbued with some sort of talent from some divine power, uh, if you could see into the future and you had visions, you would think, oh, some god is is showing me this. If you were able to come back from the dead, you would assume some good god, because you are good, therefore you would assume that it is a, it is a good force that is doing that. And so, in essence, that it's very easily be driven the wrong way. I mean, Beric could by all means be serving uh, evil. In, he doesn't know. He's just following, you know, he knows that he's being brought back to life and he believes for a purpose, but he doesn't know what that purpose is. It could be a negative purpose. It could be a negative purpose that fulfills a great thing. You never know. I find it hard that people would believe any benevolent deity would want human sacrifice uh, or bloodletting or the, the terrible atrocities that have been linked to the Lord of Light, but it's possible. All right. Thanks for writing in. John, next up. It's a trap. This one comes from Chris K. from Avon, Indiana. Chris writes, okay, I'm listening in my car, and you guys now have me yelling at my radio. The whole, oh, we're on the radio. Mission accomplished. (laughs) The whole fiasco that happened beyond the wall was definitely a trap by the Night King. Consider this evidence. One, a small group of whites happens to be hanging out alone in a canyon where the only way out is onto a frozen lake. Two, Conveniently, all but one of them was raised by the White Walker in the group. Three, the walkers let Gendry go without even attempting to catch him, even though I'm pretty sure it wouldn't be that hard. At least the walkers remember to bring horses. Four, the walkers all just stand there waiting for at least a day, although I felt it was actually a few days, watching as the bait was caught in the trap. Five, literally moments before Daenerys arrives at the dragons, they decide to attack. Six, they just happen to have a shitload of giant dragon-rated chains with them. If one or two of these happen, okay, but this is all way too much to be coincidence. So, what does this mean? Possibilities. One, 
Bran really is the Night King and knows Jon's plan and that Daenerys will come save him. I'm not sold on this one yet. Possibility two. When the Night King marked Bran, he connected with him a la Voldemort and Harry. He knows what Bran knows and sees what Bran sees, i.e. everything. This could explain why Bran is being so antisocial. He thinks if he separates himself from everyone, maybe he can hide their plans from the Night King. Or, more likely, Bran is just a douche. Love the show. That's Chris K. from Avon, Indiana. I like the trap theory. And if we're going to believe the trap uh, theory is possible, uh, the Night King could also be feeding them bad information. Uh, when they kill that one white walker, and I think it's the six of them just disintegrate, and it's the first time we've seen that. Why didn't we see that in previous encounters where a white walker was killed? When John kills his up in Hardhome, no, none of the whites collapsed. You figure numerically there should have been at least a couple in sight that that fell. Could this be another layer of trickery? That this is you know they're kind of giving them a lesson that they think that they could defeat the army by killing the White Walkers, but that really wasn't it. It was just a trick to them to be able to get their one and play them deeper into the trap. I think what we see in season seven, episode six is a highly intelligent uh, force that they're dealing with. And you see it from the flanking maneuvers, from the circling, uh, from preparedness, from choosing the place of battle. They they come north, and they're already at a disadvantage to begin with, and the Night King ex- exploits every disadvantage that they're at. Beyond that, I think because they, they don't speak because it's uh, you know they seem like zombies. We associate all the things that we normally would attribute to zombies to these characters, to the White Walkers, the Whites, and uh, and to the Night King. And I think that was a that was folly on our part to think that they're just some force that's uh, monolithic and 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 thoughtless. But in fact, he seems very thoughtful. He has a very distinct agenda here that he's 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 putting together. And now it adds a different level of suspense to the show. Where now you're thinking, what is he up to? Which isn't something that we were thinking. Prior to this, I don't think anybody was thinking, what's he up to? They thought he's going to come south and kill everybody. Yeah, and I think the capabilities of, of the combination of the Whites and the White Walkers is deadly. If they're disciplined as we've been led to believe in these last few episodes, the odds are stacked against mankind. Now you have a dragon. You have a large disciplined army that only grows exponentially as you kill the living. The final season could be a really, really just giant bloodbath for all of, of mankind. I agree. Yeah, but you know we're going to get some air-to-air battles of of white dragons and Danny's dragons. and I'm afraid to talk about what I don't want to see anymore because I said several episodes ago, I was like, no way we see an ice dragon. I'm, uh, no. And now it's here, so I also didn't want John and Daenerys to get together. They're there. Um, I also feel like at this point they've teased us so close to death on so many characters that it's going to be like when you're waiting on your great-grandma to die. You know, like she's ready to go. Everyone's ready for her to go. And you're all just waiting. I feel like that's how it is now on the show. When somebody dies, everyone's just going to be like, finally, finally, we got a death, you know, and it's going it, to it's, it's interesting that they made us want made us this bloodthirsty. Yeah, but somebody tweeted today and goes, if you guys are going to if you hate the show so much, why do you keep doing it? Why don't you go do a podcast on the prequels? You know, you could hate them, too. We don't hate the show. The show's great. We wouldn't do a podcast about a bad show. And, you know, we're, we're all going to miss it when it's over. It's just fun to talk about now, and that's why you do the podcast, and that's why you listen, and that's why you talk about it with your friends. All the possibilities. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's uh, it's the conversation that we have after watching the show all damn week 
with like a hundred of our best friends. It's yeah. uh, you know, yeah, it's nobody hates the show. No, and, and everyone who bitches and moans, you know what? At nine oh one, you're gonna be sitting on the couch with the remote in your hand, a drink, and you're gonna be entranced. So no matter how much people say, Oh, I don't like the episode, I know where you're gonna be at nine o'clock on Sunday. Although at the same time, whenever somebody writes on Facebook, uh, Game of Thrones just gave me all the feels, I have to write like garbage. <laughs> So anyway, next up is one from uh, Melbourne, Australia. This is from Andy, who writes, Hi, team. Love the podcast. Look forward to it. Second only to the show itself. And I wanted to see what you thought about Daenerys getting killed off. Maybe, here we go. Maybe in episode seven. I think there's a couple of things that make it plausible. Now, Andy makes a really good argument here. One, the lengthy and heated air conversation she had with Tyrion foreshadowed her death. Two, her dying once John bent the knee to her would set up her Dothraki and Unsullied having a reason to transfer their allegiance to John. Three, the dragon's acceptance of John post her death would help with this and also be the ultimate reveal of his true lineage. And four, seven episodes to go and we are due for an epic death. I know it's starting to feel too safe now, especially after episode six, where not a single hero character died despite battling a whole army. And I think something like the death of Daenerys would shock us back to the essence of Game of Thrones. No one is safe ever. Interested in your thoughts? Keep up the very entertaining podcast. Andy from Melbourne, Australia. For a show that used to get us to expect anyone could die from season one, Ned, you know, that it shocked everybody. You don't kill off main characters that way. Other than this week with Tormund, I've felt kind of safe all season. Are they lulling us into, uh, you know, last one said about a trap. Are we going to lose one or more in the next episode? Or are they going to try to pack this all in in the final six episodes? There is no way that we come out of this season without a major death. It's just it's just not going to happen. And what makes me very nervous again is we don't have any indication right now that Daenerys is going to go through with the plan to meet with Cersei. In fact, this incident might have put her in no mood to deal with anybody in any sort of a diplomatic way. Uh, we just don't know yet. But assuming that there is some sort of meeting uh, between Lannisters and Targaryens, this could go down horribly. And I feel like we could lose. Some. And, and again, people think Daenerys. I think Andrew makes a, a, a great uh, a great argument here. But I think Tyrion is on the on the board here, too. I think we've seen that Jon just isn't going to die. So or, or, or is already dead. Um, but I think that it would hurt the show from a viewership standpoint to not have a death here. Not that you should kill somebody for viewership, but I, I think that we are due for one. It's, it's just by the numbers. You know, you got to figure what's the death rate per episode or per season. We're bound. We're way behind. So I'm going to put you on the spot. If you had to make a bet, give me two people who would be most likely to die next episode. Oh, I think Daenerys and Tyrion are the two most likely. They're they're assuming that they go and meet with Lannisters. I think that you know people talked about how does Cersei let Tyrion leave uh, the city knowing he was there and uh, and not take him out. Maybe she's just waiting for a sweeter time. I'm gonna cheat here a little bit. We had our poll up on the website for a while saying you know who did you want to see die, and we listed uh, it looks like 15 characters. The mountains up there pretty high. Cersei's there. You know, Littlefinger. Okay, I got, I'm going to go with Littlefinger. I think they're 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 setting it up so that his time is run out, and I'm going to go Cersei. I think they 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 both deserve it, and it would make sense kind of where the plot's going. But I mean, 
if they want to blow people's minds, kill either John or Daenerys or both, and you'd see the internet meltdown. I think one of the interesting ideas that came out of this insane plan to go catch a white is uh, on, on Twitter, uh, some listeners were saying maybe the white won't convince Cersei, but it, it would convince Jamie. And what would be an interesting twist here that I think nobody would expect is if Cersei were to die and Jamie now sits on the Iron Throne or, or at least takes over or you know has control of her armies, uh, maybe this that is the incident that unites the the forces of the South against uh, against the threat from the North. Yeah, we talked about the Hound being dumb for throwing the rock earlier. I watched the episode again today. When they get the their trapped white on the dragon, and the Hound then takes him and slams him down in a spike in the back of Drogon. You imagine if he had killed him right there, like the white just just died. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, this is your you know in a video game, this is your escort mission. And you just freaking impale them. Like, way to go. Be careful. You know, treat them. You know that they fall apart. You got to be gentle with them. They're fragile. Well, he's in a bag, though. It doesn't, you, put a, you put a dragon spike through their chest. That's not smart. You have ropes. Tie them down. Do something. Just grab onto them. Yeah, why don't you bring giant chains? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, next one's from Zach D, who writes, The confrontation between Arya and Sansa is probably the best storyline going on in Game of Thrones right now. It seems the most like what the show would do. Take two characters that have been apart for a long time, bring them back together in a beautiful homecoming, then have one kill the other because of a mistake. But what I'm afraid of is that this show has lost its balls. I love the idea of Arya or Sansa killing the other. It is something that could happen very easily due to a misunderstanding. The only thing is I'm not buying it at all. That makes me think that this show has lost its luster. In season three or four, I would have totally have been worried about this. But you know what everyone's talking about? How or when they will both figure it out and kill Littlefinger. Does this not piss everyone off? I mean, we have come this far to have this show become so transparent. I'm still holding out hope that they fool us again and have one of the sisters commit a grievous error. By all the gods, please make this happen. But with all the last-minute saves and all the Hollywood dramatics this season and the, and the last, I have lost all hope in an exciting and fresh ending. Do y'all feel this way, or am I just being a baby? Gene, you said so yourself about the whiting of a dragon earlier this season. Quote, yeah, on AMC. So I know to a certain degree you have to feel the same way I am. Maybe I've just come to expect too much from this great show. Maybe nothing they do will make me happy. This season has been good so far, but man, I just feel like it's missing the twinge of fear we had in the last seasons that anyone can die at any moment. I feel the excitement has drained, and what I'm left with is just a moderate story with amazing visuals and good acting. Love the podcast. Hope if you all do disagree, you will blast me because I need some disappointment in my life right now. Have a good one, Zach. I just think it's funny that our listeners and Game of Thrones fans have such a bloodlust that he feels the show's lost its balls because you won't have sisters kill each other by mistake. He must have been loving the re- the red wedding when you were killing unborn children and last season feeding uh, young uh, Bolton to the to the hounds. I think it would be yes, it would be an oh shit moment, but I don't think it would you know give the the show more balls. It would it would make people just jaws hit the floor. And if that's your goal, you could do it. But it's just got to make sense from a plot perspective. One of my favorite authors is Cormac McCarthy. He wrote uh, Blood Meridian, uh, The Border Trilogy, The Road. And one of the things that Cormac McCarthy does is, and brilliantly, is that he makes you care so much about a character in the book that you want to pull so hard for that character. I, I mean, in uh, in The Crossing, he does it about a wolf. Like, it's not even a, a person. Um, 
and and you think okay okay and he brings to the point where like you see the you see the light at the end of the tunnel you see the exit you see the way out and then it all comes crashing down and i feel like game of thrones used to do that as a television show and i haven't seen it happen now it's when you have that glimmer of hope and then it's just vanquished and then you realize once it is that reality sets in and that you were wrong to hope to begin with i mean there's another option here besides having sister kill sister Zach assumes that, you know, the girls are going to figure it out and they're going to kill Littlefinger. What if Littlefinger's back is against the wall and he kills Sansa and frames Arya for the crime in an last-ditch effort to survive? I think that would be enough to, you know, quench Zach's bloodthirst. Yeah, I think what we're getting at, Zach, is somebody going to die. And uh, I hope you'll be happy when it does. And when it does, we'll all be blaming you because you're an absolute bastard. So you're hoping a child dies next week? Yeah, Zach, I hope a child dies and it's and the blood's on your hands. Yeah, I, ho- I hope you're happy. Hope you're proud of yourself, <laughs> Zach. All right, next up, we have one from Donna. Donna writes, uh, they can't have it both ways. They can't say that they only had material for seven and six episodes in season seven and eight, respectively, then accelerate the storytelling to high speed, leaving out the wonderful character development and rational depiction of time and space we've come to expect. This season could easily have been spread over 10 episodes. I'm sure that HBO would have welcomed that. And having a 70 or 80 minute episode now and then does not compensate for our loss. Sure, the total minutes we get is important, but have you considered that seasons one through six each gave us two and a half months of television excitement and enjoyment, while season eight will cut that back to a month and a half? The word I think of is savor. Sure, we could go so far as to have a season or two, three-and-a-half-hour feature-length movies on consecutive nights and call it a day, but think of what we'd miss. We savor the anticipation of each Sunday night. We gather our friends and dogs to watch. We take deep breaths after each show ends and immediately start replaying it in our heads. We rewatch it. We talk with our friends about it. We listen to podcasts and we write in. We make predictions and, like Littlefinger, we play out every scenario. That's what makes this show so special. It must be savored, not rushed. So, season seven is a done deal. But my question to you guys and your fans is, can we do anything to encourage the Double Ds to return Season 8 to the 10-show format? I know they've written the episodes, but they haven't filmed them. Can they take us for one last, long, glorious ride before this comes to an end? What do you think, Donna? Uh, Zero chance that we get 10 episodes. No, Donna, (laughs) but what you can do is record them on DVR and then break them up into 30-minute episodes. No, okay, so listen. We would all love this extra time. We're not going to get it. People are attacking the Double Ds. They've dedicated 10 years of their life to the show. It's usually a year of filming, uh, a year of filming in post-production. Season starts to air. They jump right back into it. This has been their life for 10 years. They didn't sign up in the beginning to, at the end, have to finish George's story. He screwed them for six years telling them, hey, I'm going to complete the story. And at the end, you're going to give them an outline. They're in a no-win situation. And I'm sure after 10 years, I don't know what the contract obligations are for all the actors and actresses and the crew. We could want 10 episodes. HBO, they seem to like money. They seem to be doing pretty well. So why would HBO agree to less episodes? Unless it was either a combination of getting all the actors together for an additional time. You can't keep this group together for 10 years. Absolutely. And beyond that, I, I, speaking of what you were saying about George R. R. Martin, 
I mean, from what I understand, he's not even watching the show at this point. So, oh no, he he came out. He admitted he was. Oh, okay, good. he corrected it. Yeah, liar. And one of the things I, I've talked with a couple listeners this week, and who were kind of saying I wasn't hard enough on the show this week. Uh, I'm looking at you, Gillian. One of the points that I had to make is like, again, kind of like you said, Big D is this season, for instance. It's it's shot. It's done. I can get as pissed as I want about it, and it's not going to change the fact that what's happened has happened. And so what we can say is, do we still appreciate the show? Of course. Can we gripe about it? Absolutely. In fact, I enjoy a show more if I can have both positive and negative things to say about it. But what we can hope for is that season eight uh, is going to return the show to form. Just because the episodes are longer uh, doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be the same as at season seven. And, and more importantly, I totally hear you, Donna. I would love to have these seasons go on longer. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, and I want to correct myself so I don't get the hate mail the um actually is already. Uh, when I say 10 years, that's as long as they've been working on the project. You know, the premiere was actually April of, of uh, 2011. So it hasn't been airing for 10 years, but they've been working on the project that long. Very good. All right, next one comes from Nate. Says, the largest hurdle I see now is that there is no conceivable possibility for a hand-to-hand fight with the Night King in Season 8. If he has the strength to hurl that spear that distance and hit a target with such incredible amount of force like he did with Viserion, how could he fight a person? If he were to fight someone, he could knock any weapon out of any adversary's hand with sheer force, and God help anyone if he decides to punch or kick them. I only see a few options left here. One, dragons kill him. Boring. The dragons can kill anything, and it hardly makes for good drama to have one or both just melt or burn him next season. Two, use dragon glass via arrow, spear, etc., or valerian steel, axe, sword, dagger, ninja star. Assuming you can hit him first or hold onto the weapon for a fight, the latter doesn't appear to be possible. Three, magic. Uh, no thanks. I didn't sign up for Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. I appreciate the physicality demanded of the characters in the show too much for that. Four, maybe we end up with a Black Knight-like death a la Monty Python in the Holy Grail. So now that it appears he has superhuman strength, how do you guys think he can be defeated? And are the remaining options, I'm sure I've overlooked some, i.e. Kryptonite, satisfying to you? It has become painfully evident over this past season that George has taken a step back from his role as a resource for D&D. I hope that he moves back into that role again as soon as possible. I hope season eight is a well-written and suspenseful as earlier seasons. It is becoming tiring to watch D&D write their way into a rock and a hard place simply because they want to have blockbuster scenes. And he, as an example, Drogon and the magic disappearing, reappearing Jamie and manufactured conflict, Arya and Sansa and that sloppily written catty bullshit. P.S. I tried to use all three votes in the death pool for Robin Aaron and it wouldn't let me. Please remedy this. Yes. Thanks, Nick. Yes. Yes. Talk about, you know, children's deaths yes i want robin to die there's no rational explanation for it there's characters on that list who've done much worse i just can't get over him wanting to kill Tyrion and throw him out the moon door and make the little man fly so i hold that vendetta but yeah the night king has superpower he's strong he can throw a javelin like an olympic gold medalist but he has a gigantic achilles heel all you have to do is hit him with one arrow tipped with obsidian with dragon's glass. He's done. He's going to completely fall apart. We're going to see him, you know, break into ice crystals. So yeah, unless he armors up, he can't go into battle. I was upset in this episode that yes, we saw some dragon glass weapons. Everybody had some makeshift ones, but Tormund, we've seen him deadly with a bow and arrow. You couldn't have put together maybe 50, 60 arrows 
while they were trapped on that island. Wouldn't that have been useful? I guess John should have thought twice before he killed Ramsey Bolton. Oh, man. If Ramsey was the eighth person in the troop, the Night King be dead, the show would be over. I guess technically he didn't kill him, but, you know, beating the living shit out of him. How about that? No. But, yes, in the end, I just hope we mentioned it in the in the Instacast, showing that the Whites have this uh, really glaring weakness that if you kill the White Walker that resurrected them, they all just fall apart, and that there's some magic that binds them. They're setting us up. Really, I hope it's it's not a case where it's the final battle, and maybe, God forbid, John squares off with the Night King, and he actually gets them, and you see all the dead just collapse. You want to see the fans just go apeshit crazy? I think that ending would do a majority of the audience in. Again, as long as he doesn't punch or kick him. Thanks for writing no, in. You, what? No, you can still punch and kick him. But it's, it's not going to help you kill him. No, no, no. I'm saying as long as the Night King, Night King doesn't punch or kick John. What? Like you think John can die? <laughs> That's a pretty brutal kick. He's immortal. There can be only one. So it's the, the quickening. All right. Next up, we got one from Ryan S. Ryan writes, I've noticed in this week's episode, aside from some illogical items north of the wall, the main gripes for most viewers are the Arya-Sansa interactions. Why can't Arya notice that Sansa is telling the truth about being forced to write the letter? Why is Arya being such an asshole, etc.? I'd like to offer an alternative view. Arya knows that Sansa was coerced. She even says Jon would forgive Sansa because she was a scared little girl all alone with the wicked Lannisters. Sansa's empty words in the letter are not the problem. The problem is that she put a pen to paper out of fear. Sansa is a survivor driven by fear. She endures trauma and cowers, manages to survive, and gets through it. Throughout all the monstrous things that have happened to her, Sansa's choices have been based on fear. Not telling King Robert the truth about Nymeria attacking Joffrey, standing by Joffrey's side, not leaving King's Landing with the Hound, marrying Tyrion and Ramsay, fleeing the Purple Wedding and Winterfell. Arya, however, is a fighter driven by anger. She speaks her mind and doesn't back down. Every person she has killed was motivated by anger. The Freys, the Waif, Marin Trant, Polliver, and company at the inn. Even the stable boy in season one, she accidentally stabbed him while turning and saying, stay away, in an angry tone. Side note, Arya did start to run for Ned on the Executioner's block, but was stopped by Yorin. Midscript P.S. I haven't read any spoilers. Now, on to where this may go. When Arya unveils the letter, she notices Sansa is full of fear. Will the Northern Lords have sympathy for her? Is my sister trying to ruin my name and strip me of my status? I believe this is enough to fear to... Drum roll. Make Sansa plan to kill Arya. That's right. Sansa has turned heel, not Arya. She has learned a lot from Cersei, indeed. This is all music to Littlefinger's ears, of course. He has sown discord amongst the sisters. He then tells Sansa that Brienne, another fighter like Arya who doesn't fear anything, is honor-bound to protect both her and Arya. Remember that Sansa took keen notice of Arya and Brienne's sparring session. Maybe fast-growing friends? Would Brienne take Arya's side? What's the best way to remove Brienne from the situation? Oh, look, a convenient invitation to King's Landing. By the way, who sent the invitation to Sansa? Cersei? Daenerys? Wouldn't Jon Snow, the King of the North and representative of Winterfell, get the invite for the summit? Or better yet, not an invitation at all since he is already in the loop of attendees. My theory is that Littlefinger sent the invitation to Sansa knowing she would send Brienne away. While Sansa is sending her away, Brienne mentions that the Northern Lords may not take Sansa's side since Littlefinger has been talking to them behind her back. We know that he has. As you see her staring down, Sansa starts to question her reasoning for sending Brienne away if she won't have the Lord's backing. So everything is set up for Littlefinger to get his way. 
Sansa wants Arya dead, and in the middle of a sister fight with Brienne gone, Littlefinger will rally the lords and take Winterfell. However, he underestimates Arya. When Sansa is snooping into Arya's bag and gets caught, the first thing she says is that there's hundreds of men who are loyal to her. She thinks Arya wants to kill her because she wants to kill Arya. However, Arya doesn't want to kill Sansa. Arya wants Sansa to stop making decisions based on fear and being manipulated by others. After her don't fuck with me monologue, Arya hands Sansa the cat's paw dagger. In a truly hypocritical way, Arya is using intimidation and fear to tell Sansa to stop being intimidated. This world doesn't let girls decide what they're going to be. But Arya decides who she wants to be. No man can influence her. She knows Littlefinger is behind this and is telling Sansa, use this dagger to stop being manipulated into fear. If Sansa is smart or talks to Bran and catches Littlefinger, then we will have a nice poetic end. However, that is not the Game of Thrones I've come to know and love. Sansa may find out too late after she tries to kill Arya. One of those three is bound to kick the bucket soon. Either way, Arya is not the villain. She's just trying to show Sansa the error of her ways before Sansa becomes the villain. Or I could be completely off. High probability of that, too. Take care, Ryan. So we got to take Ryan at his word. This is pretty detailed. I'm, I'm hoping no spoilers are included and he didn't uh, trick us into reading this. Uh, but, but I like it. But the other option is that uh, Arya's intimidation is meant to test Sansa. That she's using the skills that she learned with the Faceless Men in, in Bravos that she doesn't necessarily know. Is this the same girl that I grew up with? Uh, that letter alone isn't enough, but it would raise the question that she would want to find out truly uh, where Sansa lay. I think what's interesting about this entire letter from Ryan is I was wondering when Arya finishes that discussion with Sansa, she hands her the cat spot. I go, why did she just give her the dagger? Like, what what was the point of that? And I couldn't figure it out. And I think Ryan offers a really good and plausible explanation that she's telling Sansa I'm disgusted by your behavior in the past. I'm disgusted by your fear. You, you know, it's time to grow up. And if you are going to be the person who the lords of the north respect, if you are going to be the lady uh, of Winterfell, you need to stand up for yourself. And gives her the blade, gives her the option to do the right thing. I, I think it is it, it drawn out that way. It is quite poetic. Yeah, I think it, it adds a layer of complexity to their relationship and. I think it would be very interesting to see whether she gave it to her for protection uh, or Littlefinger to see the cat's paw there and question why she has it. Uh, I just hope they don't drag this out into season eight. We need answers. All right. Thanks for writing in. And the last one is from Chris Nava from Tampa, Florida. Chris writes, Hi, my name is Chris Nava from Tampa, Florida. The Night King. Hi, Chris. <laughs> the Night King is not a mindless idiot, and the episode this episode shows it. Consider these points of view. We know the Night King is super strong, green seer, three eye raven nemesis, and can see like Bran, but actually knows how to use his power. I also believe that the Night King controls his army like Bran controlled those ravens, and that they communicate through the same fashion. And he's broken down in a couple subheads here. So, John killing the White Walker and all but one white dying. Makes perfect sense if you can imagine the Night King knows his army's weakness and planned accordingly. When he sends scouting parties out, he has one white that won't crumble if the White Walker dies, so the remaining white can signal back to the rest of the army, possibly directly to the Night King. If the Night King does control his army through some web-like warging, this would be very useful. Next one, the white's collapsing the ice and waiting. To catch a dragon, you need to set a trap and use live bait, and you need the bait to stay in one place. This location seems perfect for this. You can even see in the show that the whites start to surround the crew almost instantly once they start crossing the ice, like they knew the plan was to trap them there in the middle. 
Next, the whites crossing the water one at a time and Sandor kicking the captured white caused a reaction from the rest of the surrounding army. Perhaps this ties into them all being connected. It also shows that they have emotion. The fact that they sent the whites back across the ice in succession opposed to all at once shows that they have some smarts. The Night King not using the javelin on Jon Snow while he had the free chance to. The Night King has Bran's power, so we can assume that he knows who Jon really is and that Jon has dragon blood running through him and that dragons have a spidey sense for that type of thing. Drogon confirmed that for us last episode with Jon. If the dragons can't sense Jon Snow because he is dead from a frozen javelin, they'd have no idea where to go and wouldn't show up. No life bait, no dragon. The location itself was shown in a vision last episode where Bran is warging the flock of crows. We see the Night King on the same rock that our heroes get stranded on. Maybe this shows that Night King has been planning on this for a while. The location itself is key for setting a trap and catching a dragon. It keeps John in one place so the dragons can sense him, and the water is a great way to ensure you finish off a dragon by drowning it if it gets hit by a javelin. Also, it forces Daenerys to leave because it confirms the dragon's death once it sinks, opposed to her not wanting to leave her potentially wounded dragon. If what we see in the show is not just bad story and is happening for a reason, possibly all part of the Night King's plan to catch a dragon, this means the Night King is super scary ill. This is the most we have learned by far about the others thus far in the show. Caveat, could this also tie into why the White Walker passed on Sam? Intelligence might mean possibility for motive. And that comes from Chris Nava from Tampa, Florida. Yeah, I don't think you can improve on this. I think he hit every point. You know, I believe it's a trap. And he, he lays out a, a perfect argument. And I think it would be ironic in the end if all the problems that we've had with this rushed plot and people doing things that necessarily didn't make sense. And this episode North of the Wall was a carefully calculated plan that the Night King had, had been you know, weaving his net a long time to get everything just right. If his powers are that strong as a green seer and he can you know, predict the future as we now have to believe he could, letting Sam go could likely be part in the entire overall plot to eventually get John into this location. And I really like it. Yeah, he's like the, he's like the Dr. Ford of, uh, of Westeros. What's interesting here is Chris brings up two things that, that I didn't think about before. And then we talked about this trap. I think we're in agreement on that. But one thing, uh, two things he talks about is one is that People have asked, how the hell did Daenerys find Jon so quickly? Like, sure, she got the raven yeah. that said where he was, but you had a, the guy who was delivering the message for the raven in Gendry. He's, he does, he's not a navigator. He doesn't know the north that well. Is it possible that Drogon knew where Jon was, that he could sense where he was? Uh, yeah, it's possible. Uh, and so you'd have to keep him alive so that Drogon could kind of hone in on him. But the other one is, is the idea that um, the rock, the rock that the Night King is on, is exactly the one that Bran sees in the vision. And I knew that vision came to us for a reason, and, and they're very specific about some landmarks in the scene. So I think that's a really good observation as well that I, I'd totally forgotten about. So well done. Well, I want to ask you this. Uh, a lot of people have a problem at the end with the way the dragon turning was done. And it seemed a little contrite, and it, it's led to the, everybody questioning the, the chains. We've seen before that the Night King can turn people without physically touching them. He did it at Hardhome. He raised his arms. Would it have been more compelling if the Night King approached the frozen lake with the hole 
And he just stood there and slowly raised his arms. And as an audience, a collective audience, we would know what he was doing because we had seen it two seasons ago and said, holy shit, he's he's bringing him back. He's bringing him back. And the episode ended with Viserion's head breaking the water and we could see his eyes. At first, I thought, yes. At first, I thought that's the way to do it, right? It, It would be a lot cooler. But a couple things. One is that we already knew he was under the water. So, I mean, it wasn't like we were like, what's he pulling out of the water? I mean, you know. But I think the other two points are is that Viserion isn't a white. So whites can be raised like that. But white walkers, as we've seen in accordance with the show, when he's creating a white walker, he has to touch it physically on the head to turn it. So this is not a white dragon. This is a an other dragon, right? It is it is elevated to the station of white walker, which means a couple of things, actually. The implication there is that it can create, it can raise its own whites, which is terrifying, right? A, a dragon that flies south of the wall and can actually raise the dead. Uh, you know, assuming it can fly south of the wall is one thing. But another point that's a bit unnerving about it is, is the chains is the fact that they brought this story part in. It's one of the key clues that we have that this was a trap. And if the chains hadn't been there, would we even talking about the trap? Yeah. But again, I think you're making an assumption that we don't have an answer for. You're assuming that this is now a, a, let's just say white Walker dragon, that it's not a white We've never seen any creation, let alone a dragon, turned into a white walker who is dead. All of Craster's children were alive when they were converted. The, the first men who was created by Leaf in Bran's vision was alive. I don't believe this is a white walker dragon. This is a white. Do we know it was dead, though? Did you see him bleeding out? Well, yeah, but he I don't like know. A stuck don't know. I'm not a dragon doctor. I don't know what a okay. dra- dragon's dead or not. Well, I'm pretty confident the dragons can't breathe underwater. All right, answer this. Is Jon Snow dead? Because Jon Snow went under the water. Oh, I hate no misdirection here. Jon Snow's a human. We know that he can at least hold his breath. It's possible. Jamie and Braun swam quite a distance. But dragons in water, after you were shot with an ice lance and you bled out, you crashed into the ice? No, he was dead. All right, well, we'll see. We'll, we'll see, God damn it. You think he was sleeping? His eyes were closed. He's dead. All right. Well, now that you're correcting me, we can move on to everyone's favorite part of the small council. Um, actually, where we read uh, your corrections from Twitter, YouTube, uh, and email. Again, if you have a correction for us uh, on the podcast, be sure to write to us, please, at host at shadowntv.com with the subject line, um, actually, or tweet at us with hashtag, um, actually, and I'm even scanning YouTube at this point. By the way, thanks, everyone, for being so kind on YouTube after the solo cast. Uh, I was expecting just a shitstorm, and you guys were uncommonly nice. I actually questioned whether or not to post it on YouTube, because YouTube sometimes is like being trapped on that rock in the middle of the lake with the surrounded by the undead. You guys can be a little ruthless sometimes. All right, so the first one... Actually, why don't you take the first one? Because I really want the second one. <laughs> okay. Uh, first one comes from Joyce. Um, actually, not a correction, but who put the chains on the dragon for him to be lifted out of the water? Whites can't swim, right? So did the dragons happen to sink under the chains and then get attached to be pulled out? Really disappointed with the scene. Joyce. But why is that numb, actually? We didn't make a mistake. No, but that says not a correction. She just wants to know. Oh, well, it's easy. If you've ever been to SeaWorld uh, or been to a zoo, have you seen polar bears in the water? They're naturals. If you have two or three undead polar bears, they could easily be trained to fasten those chains. Wouldn't they need thumbs, though? No, they got those big jaws. 
Also, did he have a collar or did they fasten one? How did no, they-, they haven't had collars on since they were living uh, across the narrow sea. So what, they choke them out? They did some kind of knot to secure those dragons. Maybe it's just kind of like fishing. You just kind of hook it back in the <laughs> back of the mouth or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. Fish hook. That's the bigger question, Joyce, is how they attach the chain to the dragon. All right. Next up, uh, we have uh, we have one from Michelle M. from Atlanta. She writes, I'm not sure if this fully counts as an um actually, but director Alan Taylor has debunked the living long claw theory. Uh, and she's, she provides a link, uh, which we will put uh, on the on the website, shadowntv.com. She says, I'm sorry to be the bearer of debunking news, but I thought you should know Valar Doheras. And so I looked up uh, I looked up the article, and in fact, he does say that they had what they call the frost effect, what they do to make it look like they're out in the, in the snow in a barren tundra. People think that Longclaw's eye opened. Uh, they said actually they just had the frost effect turned up. And it created a strange visual artifact, but that they were really glad that people were paying such close attention. What's strange to me, though, is that other people have pointed out that in season six, episode four, John draws his his sword. And he draws Longclaw, and the the pommel of the sword. If you look closely at it, it also appears to open its eye. So I don't know if maybe they they weren't expecting people to catch on it, but I'm going to take the director on his word and say it probably was nothing. So thanks for letting us know, Michelle. Okay, next one. I'm glad actually I got this one because uh, I hadn't read this before, but I think I had an answer for it. It comes from Ashley. Um, actually, if there were only 12 whites, we we're looking for five now. John killed two. There were four at the battle, and Sam killed one earlier in the series. I'm pretty sure there are a lot more, however, since there were the whites to make all the undead plus casters male children. Love the show, Ashley. Yes, John did kill two, but Sam's kill came in season three, episode eight, prior to the head count. But you did miss one that does count. It's Mira's kill. The episode, I think it was the door. She kills one with the spear. That one did count. So I think we are still looking for five, but you just had them reversed. But I think at some point the show gave a count of like 99 or 100. So I guess, no. again, the ones that haven't grown up yet. No, the, the ones that have got, So it leaves you to wonder, like, how are they raised? Do some of them die off in the process? Like, how does that work? A thousand? Maybe there's a thousand of them. That number seems yeah, to be. a thousand. Someone wrote into us and said, maybe in Westeros, they actually use a system that's based on fives instead of tens. So a thousand is, in fact, something... I forget how it works. Anyway, uh, yeah, no, yeah, there's a thousand, there's a thousand of them. Uh, next up, uh, we have one uh, from Mitch from Pitt Law. And Mitch writes, um, actually, Beric lights his sword using his own blood as previously seen on the show, not flint or a glove. Thanks for the awesome podcast. I cannot wait for Westworld coverage once the throne's void is left in my heart. Well, we talked about this, and I agree that we've seen him do the blood magic when he was uh, about to duel the hound, and it looked, I mean, it was legit from his hand, but at that time, he didn't have a glove on. This time, he's got a glove on, and you you hear a distinct metal sound. So I don't know if that's just, again, something that was edited in. Uh, maybe he's cutting through the glove into his hand. I'm lost here. This time, there's a, actually a time in this episode where he lights it up where both hands are on the handle. He doesn't go anywhere near the blade. So unless they have a continuity error, uh, maybe it's like a lightsaber. He's got a button there. You could just fire that sucker up. Yeah, you see on the polar bear attack that both Beric uh, and Thoros, just they pull the swords and they just light up. I still think it's a flint. They got some kind of ring or a stone in their glove. Blood would be so difficult. You don't want to cut yourself out in the cold like that. That, that wound's not going to close. You're going to look like John on that boat ride home with those sucking chest wounds. 
All right. And finally, we have one from Quincy. This is about the order of succession. Quincy writes, um, actually, if King Eris II died before Prince Rhaegar, then Jon Snow would be next in line to King Rhaegar, without a doubt. But that didn't happen. Prince Rhaegar dies before King Eris II, so the successor is established directly from the living king, Eris II, not his dead child, Rhaegar. This is what happened in the lead-up to the Second Blackfire Rebellion. Daron II was king, and Baelor was the crown prince with two sons. Baelor's oldest son, Valar, was second in the line of succession behind his father, Baelor. But when Baelor was killed, Valar did not become the crown prince. Instead, King Daron II, next son... Makar became the crown prince, skipping his older sister, Rhaegel, and his now dead brother's children. Quincy. Holy shit, Quincy. Thank you, Quincy. That was nice. And with that, we conclude this week's episode of On the Throne Small Council. Be sure to follow us on social media and share with a friend. We're on Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram, at ShadonTV. On Facebook, search for ShadonTV Podcast. The website is ShadonTV.com, where you can see all these emails in their entirety. Uh, many of them were truncated for, uh, for length. So uh, they have a lot more great information in them. Uh, and there are many more that we'll post uh, on the website as well. So if you didn't hear yours on the podcast, it will be on the website shortly. And if you have more to add, you can email us at hosts at com, where everywhere fine podcasts can be found, including iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe. And if you stop by iTunes, please write a review that helps the podcast grow. Thank you so much for everyone who's been writing them lately. Uh, they've been really, really uh, encouraging in, in these times where we're just powering through the, the final weeks and, and dealing with uh, various trials and tribulations. Uh, finally, if you like Shout on TV, check out our sister podcast, Shat the Movies, where we review the best 80s and 90s movies from our childhood that you, the audience, vote for. Uh, coming up very soon is uh, our review of Top Gun. Uh, check out all that information at shatthemovies.com. On behalf of my co-host, Big D, Dick Ebert, I'm Gene Lyons. Be sure to join us on Sunday for our final Game of Thrones Instacast. Thanks for listening, and as always, be sure to knock twice before joining us on the throne. Mm-hmm.